Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a new semi-regular segment of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Joining me here in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is three-time Olympic attendee, Trey Jones. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. To his left is SpecGram's official minister of broken furniture, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from the second moon of Patakis 9, Bill Spruill. Hey. Thanks for joining us. All right, to start things off, Trey is going to introduce a feature we like to call Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. All right, welcome to Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. So I'll give you guys uh, three language-related items. Two of them are true, and one of them is a lie, though it is based on something that is actually true. And then after I read through them, each of you will have to talk your way into a choice regarding which one of them is false. When you're all done, I'll tell you a little more, a little more about each item and reveal which one is the lie. And we'll keep score from podcast to podcast to see who's the most gullible. Ready. All right, number one. In a recent study, researchers found, contrary to assumptions long held by typographers, that easy-to-read fonts made it easier for people to understand and retain information, that, in fact, ugly fonts are better for learning. Number two, Apple Computer and the Cherokee Nation have worked together to make the Cherokee syllabary available on the iPhone. Number three, psychologists have discovered that children who grew up in noisy households have to work harder at making out speech and so develop verbal skills more quickly. Bill, we'll start with you. Okay. I think number one is probably true, and I'm saying that because I assume that the kind of person who phrases a question that way probably thinks that sans serif is easy to read and that ugly means Times Roman. (laughs) And Times Roman obviously conveys information better than Helvetica, so I think number one is probably true. Uh, number two, I also think is true because Apple would use that for PR like nobody's business, and that makes it likely. Number three, I think, is the false one because a lot of young people these days grew up with parents that played a lot of metal in the house, and those kids don't have good verbal skills that often. So I think that's the false one. All right. David? Okay, so there's one false one and two true ones? That is correct. Oh, dear. All right, so uh, first one is uh, is obviously true because there's nothing uglier than a sans-serif font. Wait a minute, but you said that the that the sans-serif fonts were the nice ones, the easy to... No, nah, come on. That's Bill's making Bill's making stuff up. He didn't... He doesn't... Look, I heard you say ugly, and... I said ugly. I probably heard you say Times New Roman is the ugliest font that I've ever seen in my life. I'm pretty sure you said that. I can go back no, and... No, I said it. that typographers probably think Times Roman is ugly because typographers love those darn sans-serif things. And typographers themselves are not attractive? Is that what you're saying? I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, okay. Obviously, obviously that one is true. That's the true one. I think we're, we're, we're done there. Okay, so the second one, first of all, I thought that was already true. I thought that happened years ago, um, and I actually have an iPhone, and I only type in the Cherokee alphabet or syllabary, so that is probably true as well. Uh, the last one had better not be true, because when I raise children, I'm going to surround them with speakers from all sides playing all different kinds of music, and then just having um, people speaking in all different kinds of languages all at once. I'm going to kind of surround the crib. It's going to be a sonic mobile. So I'm going to say that's not true because I really want it to not be true. David, if the last one is true, then your plan is a good one. Really? Yeah. 
Oh, son of a gun. Keith. Well, this is a tough, tough choice. The first one, I'm sure is true, because uh, everybody knows that schools have found that making children uncomfortable is the best way to keep their attention on learning. And uh, so, by extension, ugly fonts would certainly be better mm-hmm. than uh, pleasant-to-look-at ones. Uh, the third one, you know, I think the third one must be true. It says psychologists have discovered that uh, this about children, and psychologists are capable of discovering anything. <laughs> so I think that uh, they certainly could have come up with such a conclusion. So I think number one, number two must be false. And I, I, that makes sense to me because uh, I haven't heard anything about it. And like Bill said, Apple Computer would certainly be milking this for a lot of publicity. So I'm going to go with the Cherokee syllabary as the one that's not true. All right. Uh, well, let's take them in order then. The first one, again, was that uh, recent study researchers found that ugly fonts are better for learning. Uh, that one is actually true. The, the, yes. <laughs> the paper has a great title. It's Fortune Favors the Bold and the Italicized. <laughs> Effects of which, dis- which fonts did they consider ugly, though? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that they I – I didn't actually get into it enough to see specific fonts. But anyway, it says effects of disfluency on educational outcomes. And as you guys alluded to, uh, previous research has shown that disfluency, which is the experience of difficulty associated with cognitive operations, leads to deeper processing, which then leads to understanding things better. Uh, It's the depth of annoyance hypothesis. It's the whole foundation for the education of linguists, you know, in uh, linguistic classes. It's all founded on this principle. Right. Mm. First, they did it in the laboratory. And then they did it again in a high school classroom. And so it seems like if you want uh, people to, to learn things better, just changing the font, which is very superficial, could lead to good results. So that's pretty interesting. Number two, you guys were apparently wrong about Apple wanting to sing their own praises. It is, in fact, true that they worked with the Cherokee Nation and made the Cherokee silver available on the iPhone. They were Widely available? I believe so. It It's probably something you have to install or turn on or... Maybe it's just there. I don't know. I haven't really messed with the language settings on my... You have to go into the options and click the Cherokee syllabary option to on. It starts us <laughs> off by default. Yeah, I would assume that would be true. Um, but actually, the Cherokee Nation basically hassled them for a long time and got them to do it. This fellow named Joseph Erb, who works for the Cherokee Nation's lingua- uh, Language Technology Division, said, if you don't figure out a way to keep technology exciting and innovative for the language, kids have a choice when they get on a cell phone. If it doesn't have Cherokee on it, they all speak English. They'll just give up their Cherokee because the cool technology is in English. So we had to figure out a way to make the cool technology in Cherokee. All right. And then the last one, this one is actually false. It's the exact opposite. And like you said, Keith, a psychologist could discover anything, but you didn't take into account the possibility that what they actually discovered was the opposite. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so George Hollich from Purdue University says, it seems to be the case that in noisy households, kids have lower vocabulary skills. One of the things they can do is use what they see to hear a little bit better. And so uh, they did some interesting experiments where in a noisy environment, looking at a video and being able to see someone's mouth made it easier for the kids to understand. But in general, their verbal verbal skills develop a little more slowly in noisy environments. So David, your plan is a terrible one. And uh, if you are allowed to breed, you should in fact keep your kids in a quiet space and just teach them. No more than five or six languages at a time, no more than three or four of which you made up yourself. Well, you, you've convinced me. When I have kids, they're going straight into the closet, and I'm going to open it up when they're 18. <laughs> I think you only have to wait until the end of the critical period. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Thanks, Trey, for that. We're going to look forward to that segment from here on out. 
All right, now for some language news. First off, hot off the presses, is this thing called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. This is brand new. So uh, as understood by uh, language creators, this is, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis states that language controls thought. More specifically, the popular understanding of the hypothesis, which itself isn't really a hypothesis per se, can be broken down into two corollaries. First, there's the strong version. Language determines thought, and as a result, limits experience. So speakers of two different languages experience two entirely different realities purely because of the languages that they speak. That's the strong version. The weak version holds that language influences thought in some way and can, in certain instances, condition speakers of a given language or language type to think about certain real-world phenomena in a particular way. All right, let's assume for the time being that language doesn't influence thought at all. Uh, Bill, can you persuade us otherwise? I would say that there is an advertising industry, and the fact that it exists means that language influences thought. <laughs> if I hold out a plate with something on it and say, would you like a piece of steak, you may or may not say yes, but you probably have a much higher chance of saying yes than if I hold it out and say, would you like a piece of cow? <laughs> Uh, since enough. English speakers grew up with a lexical distinction between cow and beef because of the history of the language, beef is from Norman French because they were the ones that were being allowed to eat the cows, and cow is from Old English, we think of cows as being the live animal and beef as being the stuff on the plate. That reaction that we have is a real one. It's a lot smaller scale than what's usually discussed in relation to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, but it is something, you know, calling something a revenue enhancement instead of a tax increase affects people's decisions about it. Okay, let me play devil's advocate for a minute here. So first of all, can anybody think of any languages where there is no distinction between the name for the animal and the name for the meat. The one that comes to me first off the top of my head is inuktitut, because I've learned the word for caribou, uh, and I know that one just fine, but I don't think there's a separate word for caribou steak. Anybody? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, however, in French, they're both the same word. Well, and if you think of English, say, chicken, they're both the same word. Now, that's very interesting because I really don't like chicken, but I enjoy both beef and pork. Okay, so <laughs> clearly English has influenced your, your taste perceptions. But what, what about poultry? Does that count? Fowl? Poultry is fowl, yes. Wait, okay, wait. Fowl, fowl is an unfortunate homonym with something else, right? And uh, therefore does influence your thinking about fowl, potentially. Okay, but if you see on a menu guinea fowl, that's not only going to make you want to eat it, it's going to make you think that this magical bird is somehow fancier than your ordinary chicken, right? Actually, I'd expected a restaurant to see guinea hen. You can say guinea fowl, right? I didn't just make up that term. Well, you can, but you can also, like, use the Latin name for it. It's just restaurants usually don't. Oh, well, that's their loss, I suppose. But actually, you brought up French, Trey, and it occurs to me there is a term in French for meat, at least for a cow. It started off, we have the word beef, right, in English, which mm -hmm. came to us from boeuf. When, right. which, you know, came from cow. It got over to America where we have, you know, steaks made out of beef, and that got back to France as le beef steak. It's a real word. Right, right. It exists. Well, then I guess maybe what I'm talking about is uh, second-year college French, which is a, is a dialect of French widely spoken in the U.S., 
And there, there's only one word for beef and cow. <laughs> and that's the version of French that I knew low these many years ago. All right, fair enough. Um, so would you call yourself a native speaker of that version? Uh, yes, as long as, as, yes, because there are no native speakers of that who are also fluent. So sure. Right. You can, ex- you can discuss a lot of important things with second-year French, such as, où est la toilette? And I think that's about it. That is, in fact, the most important thing you can discuss, yes. Right. Okay, so let's, let's go back to the spiritual warp hypothesis itself. Uh, one thing that I think is often ignored by linguists is how important the superior warp hypothesis has been in the history of language construction, uh, which is that most conlangers would not ever have created a language if they didn't believe the superior warp hypothesis was real. Hmm. So does that mean that you can then, uh, I don't know, can you find maybe evil geniuses in the making based on their conlang if they are clearly trying to take over the world by having a language that only has a submissive aspect to it? or I don't think there's any doubt about it. For example... I'm not quite sure where we're going here. Well, this is where we're going, and this is very important to me. You look at every single created language, and the word for good will be some variant of my first name. I think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely true in all the languages that you've created. And why wouldn't it be? I, th- I thought your first name actually meant enthusiastically octagonal. <laughs> I, I believe apparently my name my name originally comes from the Hebrew and means something like beloved. Well, yeah, enthusiastically octagonal, that's going to become beloved over time. I mean, that's standard semantic drift with terms for octagonality. <laughs> Makes perfect sense to me. Just kind of yeah. smooth off the rough edges there and the meaning and you get down to, yeah, good. Just a little grammaticalization going on there. Yeah, it's not like it's it's member of the opposite set that starts out with um, obstinately trapezoid. Anyway, something you may not be aware of is that in early 90s, we published an article in Speculative Grammarian where someone actually did a laboratory test of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. The important thing to think about here is that at least when you're not talking about constructed languages, which often do have constructed cultures attached to them, but sometimes not, uh, is you can't get away from the cultural context of the language. And so when they took a number of children and assigned them languages that had typical characteristics, uh, so the Midwest U.S. was friendly and boring, French was romantic and obnoxious, German was efficient and aggressive, classical Latin was pragmatic and imperialistic, and Khoisan was peaceful and xenophobic. They took these kids and raised them speaking these languages in the Midwest U.S. The result was, uh, 18 years later, when the the results were published, again, this is in the early 90s, the speakers of U.S. English, French, German, Classical Latin, and Khoisan were all friendly and boring, having grown up in the Midwest. Ah. And so, in fact, culture is more important than language in terms of determining, at least for these these stereotypical national characteristics. (laughs) A truly disturbing finding, at least for those of us that plan to create languages to try to inflict our worldviews on others. Including your children? Especially my children. You know, the thing that I find uh, most unfortunate about all this publicity that you get in the popular press, of course, the strong version of the superior wharf hypothesis is very attractive to people. It sounds like the sort of thing you could build a language on, right, for a conlanger. But the sad thing about it is that it all just goes back to a misunderstanding. And if you go back and read Sapir's personal diaries, you discover that actually he just made an offhanded comment to Warp, his student, 
suggesting that Worf himself was a little bit cognitively deficient, and uh, maybe there was a, a language problem going on there. And uh, Worf took this and blew it into a, a big theory that really didn't have anything to do with. Sapir was only talking about that one individual. He didn't. He wasn't saying anything about human language as a general capacity. <laughs> And and this you're suggesting led to the development of the Worf character in Star Trek: The Next Generation. Well, that's that seems like a likely connection, doesn't it? He was modeled. He was modeled after uh, uh, Benjamin Worf, right? Just physically. <laughs> Just physically. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Hey, uh, hang on, guys. I have actually a bit of breaking news. This is coming in right now. Uh, there are apparently, allegedly, Americans who pronounce the word "new." as if it had had a Y in it, as if it were pronounced new. Uh, this is clearly the incorrect way of doing it, but apparently they exist. Keith, I know that you've studied this a bit. Is this rumor true or false? Do these people actually exist or not? Well, they, they don't. I've actually Excellent. been looking into this for the past couple of years, and I'm just in the process of publishing a paper. It's coming out in Nature just in the next few weeks here. And uh, I've conclusively shown that there are no such people. This is just rumor-mongering. Oh, that's fantastic. Trey, have you come across any at all, uh, any of these aberrant abnormalities? I have not. I do not know anyone who actually speaks that way. Though I do have a theory about how it could happen if they did. Oh, splendid. Uh, please elucidate. Um, yeah, please do. <laughs> so, as everyone knows, when Bostonians go and they're driving around and they go to park their cars... What happens is the lost R's will actually float up into the atmosphere. They uh, go with the prevailing winds and end up landing in Texas where people wash things. Oh, dear. Okay. So this is a well-established theory of phonemic conservation. So my theory is that if someone were actually to be pronouncing new that way, that these are probably the result of people who mispronounce human as if it were human. And what happens is we actually have the H assimilates to the Y sound and then is deduplicated. And so that extra Y floats up into the, into the air and ends up in whatever linguistic backwater it is where people say things like New York. But there uh-huh. are no such people. Well, well if there were, if there were. If, if I can interject here. Okay. I, I think the discussion you have has achieved one of the sort of hallmarks of classic formal linguistic argumentation, which is that it sketches out a relationship based on data that turns out not to exist and the relationship itself is backwards, but contains a generalization that is nevertheless potentially useful. I am a native speaker of Nubian. We say you. This is not, uh, not, a, not, not really, right? This is not a new thing. It's been around for a good while. But I think that your idea it. of atmospheric phonemic recycling is probably loosely correct. I've noticed where I'm living, for example, Y's have disappeared from a bunch of words. People say new and they say coupon and that kind of thing. But right, because they're American and speak English. In, yes. in, in rapid speech... And well, they're I, on Earth, Bill. They're on Earth. I probably can't do this correctly because it's not my native dialect, but you'll get a general feel for it. You overhear a couple of people talking and you get something like, well, I wasn't quite sure what to do about that. And so I was talking to her and she wanted me to telephone Marge about it. And so what you're actually hearing is Q for two. And I think that's where the Ys are going. Oh, dear. So every time you criticize somebody for saying you, you're helping lead to the yod infestation of innocent <laughs> oh, prepositions. Good. 
Goodness gracious. Just remember that. Bill, just because you've got this data that seems to contradict the theory that the, the rest of us are subscribing to, that really isn't enough. I mean, sometimes you just have to put your faith in the theory and, and determine what is true before you look at the data. That's the best way to make progress in linguistics. That's true. This could just be an aberration. And so I think taking that, that principle and uh, given your current remote location and applying Occam's razor, I think we come to the conclusion that Keith is right. There are no people who actually say this and you're not a person. That makes sense to me. I think I can accept that. And you're too far away to do anything about it. That's very true. That is very true. Okay. Schedule you people for another solar flare. Got it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodness. Let's let's go ahead and play with your idea a little bit, Bill, that you might actually produce this aberrant noise, as I call it. Clearly, it comes from British English, where there are at least certain dialects that pronounce things in any number of bizarre ways. But uh, let me test you on a couple of these. So first of all, go ahead and pronounce the word that is a synonym for naked. Nude? <laughs> all right, all right. Fine. Although sometimes I would say nude, but actually most of the time I'd say naked. <laughs> butt naked, isn't it? Yeah, it's usually yeah. butt naked. Well, yeah, unless you got unless you got socks on, <laughs> <laughs> then it's just naked. Understood. Okay, uh, I got a, I have another one for you. Pronounce the English word for a. Small hill, very small hill, usually comprised of sand. A dune? Say it again. Oh, that one, I'm not sure if I'd say dune or dune. Let me, it was on top. I would say dune on that one. Let me turn it around, though. If it's countable objects, and you don't have one of them, and you don't have a lot of them, you have a... A foo. Yeah, a foo. Just a, just, just a foo yeah. with them. Foo with them. Got it. Got it. And if a cat's not meowing, but it's just making blank sound, is it different from the sound a cow makes? Well, it's, sure, diff- sure. Well, it's it- got an L at the end. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, they're mooling. Right, mooling. Ah, got it, got it. Right. The three of us here, uh, Trey, Keith, and I, were agreed our judgments of sound, and I, I, I don't know, perhaps you're just uh, something like a linguistic terrorist trying to inject your uh, divergent ideas into our sound linguistic ecosystem. Uh, did you consider that, Bill? Well, for a few seconds until I heard you saying aberrant instead of aberrant, and then yeah, I, I figured, hey, I'm probably right on this one. Wait, Yeah, I have to agree with Bill on the it's aberrant. I, and, uh, I'm sorry. The great thing about it is your, your pronunciation is self-descriptive then. I, I'm <laughs> did you just say aberrant? And he did no. correctly say it, it aberrant, is, as it did is I. aberrant. It is. That, nobody has ever pronounced that word that way in the history of the entire world until now. Well, the three of us just did. So yeah. using your argument from before, there's three of us, there's one of you. <laughs> now, now, wait a minute. Shut up, sit down, it's over. <laughs> but, but every, you know, every theory comes with some preliminary apparatus, and I can see a position where part of the preliminary apparatus is that the universe was created two seconds ago, and what we think are our memories were created along with them. And so according to that interpretation, whatever you think it could be the first time it's ever been said. Now, look, you can't start bringing in your two-second-ago-ism. That's heresy. Everyone knows it was last Thursday. 
There was a very large movement of last Thursdayism out there. Don't bring your blasphemous two second egoism into it, or we're going to get just inundated with calls and emails that will have just appeared. Actually, out of actually, you know, they're not nearly as bad as the Twelfth Day Adventists. I wouldn't worry about it that much. <laughs> Uh, so getting back to my theory about uh, where these extra whys, if they do exist, are coming from. You, you mean the theory that you now believe firmly is your theory? I believe it's mine, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> it really gets down to these people who say human. Now, as a dyed-in-the-wool descriptivist, I'm honored, bound to defend to the death speakers' rights to say whatever horrible thing their dialect dictates that they say. I think we can address the issue of whether or not it extends to proper names, and I believe that this, in this case it doesn't. Um, I grew up in southeast Texas near the Gulf Coast, and I can ex- accept that there are some aberrant or aberrant speakers who say human, but the city in Texas is not called Houston. It's Houston. I've heard lots of people say Houston. Lots of people say really stupid things all the time. It doesn't make it right. <laughs> it's... And for the Star Trek nerds, same thing. It was Commander Data. It wasn't Commander Data. You couldn't call him Data. That wasn't his name. And the city is named after Sam Houston, and his name is Houston. It's not Houston. I thought he pronounced his name Houston. You're thinking of that that show with the doctor. Anyway, we should probably move on. Oh, fantastic. Well, um... Yeah, go on to something new. I can't unhear it. I need ear bleach. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Uh, every so often here at SpecRam, we receive questions from our readers and listeners, our numerous, numerous legions of readers and listeners. Uh, today, we got a question from a precocious youngster who's already looking ahead to college. This is 10-year-old Kevin Bickelson from New Haven, Connecticut. I've been considering majoring in linguistics when I get to college, but after seeing Watson on Jeopardy recently, I wonder if I should even bother going to college. Watson understands English better than most people I know, and knows way more than Ken Jennings. Should I major in linguistics, or just prepare to welcome our new robot overlords? Okay, so I think the first question here, the the crux of it, is, is Watson really understanding language? And if so, is there any purpose for us, human beings? Are you suggesting that Jeopardy is a form of language? (laughs) All right. From my own personal experience, I have to say they, they've been running these ads, these IBM ads on television every so often, and one of them comes up about Watson. The question goes something along the lines of, I, I'm an IBMer, I'm building a smarter planet, and the question is, what if we could build a computer who could play Jeopardy? And my first thought for this was, wow, that would be really interesting. I, I waste time too. What on earth, why on earth should this be useful to us? I would rather have a computer that you can know, iron my clothing. Why do I care if it can participate in Jeopardy and earn more money than my fellow humans? That's a really... I was, Go ahead, Bill. I was also left with the kind of question that, you know, since I, I don't watch Jeopardy, actually, but I looked at the rules for it. And if the idea is they give you an answer and you're supposed to ask a question that that's the answer to... Why couldn't Watson just figure out to say, what is the question that would have this as an answer? Why can't we all do that? It's a pretty good question. Well, I I couldn't figure that one out either. Did they rule that out on that show? Well, they must. It's an interesting way to define what the contestants are supposed to do because they're told to give a question. But in fact, the question that they give is an answer, not a question. It has the syntactic form of a question, but in fact, it's an answer. 
and occasionally the pragmatics of it is actually a social commentary. I remember there was a teen tournament where the answer was about this model, male model has graced the cover of numerous romance novels. And the uh, young man who rang in, his question was, what is Fabio? <laughs> and I think that this was actually a, a, an act of social commentary on the something of something. The phenomenon of male models. Sure, that'll do. And is this something that you think Watson would be capable of? Can he make social commentary? Well, it depends on what kind of... Then it gets into your theory of whether you have some sort of postmodern uh, reader response theory, because it doesn't matter what Watson does or what he intends, but rather how you interpret it. And this actually gets back to why we should in fact have Watson. And the reason for that is that even though Watson crushed the puny humans and their little tiny three-pound brains with its 10 giant racks of uh, servers and 15 petabytes of data, is that even though it crushed them, it made really stupid mistakes. It thought Toronto was a U.S. city. Hmm. Um, it thought that Picasso was an art period. Uh, after Ken Jennings gave the incorrect answer of the 1920s, it gave the still incorrect answer of the 1920s. Same answer, yeah. And the point so, of that so is... So it's acting exactly like an undergraduate. <laughs> Quite possibly, but hold on, stay with me here. The point of this is that it's serving as an example for those of us, well, not me, but those of you who... Uh, when they are confronted by their betters, can just still feel like, well, even though it won a million dollars and I didn't, it's still dumb, and that makes me feel better. And so I think this is actually some sort of early form of mind control that IBM is trying to promulgate uh, through ah. the airwaves via Jeopardy. Oh, that makes sense. Makes as much sense as anything else we've said today. But now that you, uh, <laughs> now that you brought it up, though, Watson may have been making a form of social commentary with Toronto. Toronto may very well be a U.S. city. We're not sure. Because we can't actually prove that Canada is different from the United States, correct? Uh, no, because weather stops at the Canadian border. Oh, does it? Yeah, I look at the Weather Channel. Those cloud systems come <laughs> up from Canada, and they just stop. There's nothing there. <laughs> so it's quite possible, then, that Canada doesn't actually exist, which would warrant the amount of, of attention and care that Americans put into the question of whether or not Canada exists. Which is, which is mainly what happens on Jeopardy. Oh, we were talking about Jeopardy, weren't we? Sorry, what? Jeopardy. I mean, another possibility is that Toronto actually is an American city, and we were just not aware of it. Da uh, Watson has access to a whole lot more data than the average human does. Hmm. Yeah, I I'd also sort of point out in response to the young listener who called in that what Watson is actually doing does not replace the need for linguists or does not overlap what linguists do. Watson is using some its natural language processing approach, takes a lot of existing data and applies it pragmatically in order to solve real-world problems. And that's not what linguists do, all right, <laughs> in any way whatsoever. And so it's not that Watson has replaced linguists in any sense. In fact, every time it gets an answer right, it's reinforcing that it's not doing things the way linguists do. <laughs> in fact, as I, uh, by my reckoning, I believe that the job description of a linguist is what a linguist is supposed to do is keep him or herself employed. And I think that's pretty much the extent of their job description. Uh, as a corollary, one of our additional abilities is to increase time and cost overruns on natural language processing research. <laughs> I well, think it's, it's, it's one competence performance distinction can set back natural language processing for decades. I mean, you don't get that kind of efficiency without training. 
Actually, uh, the most critical question for linguists about Watson is just how many linguists are making a living on that project. Alas, I don't think it was any. Oh, great. You mean zero? Well, real linguists. There were plenty of computational... In linguistics, we that. <laughs> yeah, computation. I'm a computational linguist. I don't know any linguistics. I just do math all day. In linguistics, we don't call it zero. We call it the null everything. <laughs> so, yes, there are an infinite number of, of null allomorphs of linguists on the Watson Project. They don't That's get somehow them. disturbing because that means uh, we need to have at least one in there to, to perform the functions that Bill is talking about. Uh, you mean bringing the computational linguists their coffee? No, 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 no. Uh, keeping the, prog- pr- keeping the, the program from actually making progress. I mean, otherwise they might accomplish something. So uh, how should we... How should we uh, advise young Kevin? Uh, well, personally, I always think it's a mistake to pursue a degree in linguistics, but I can't say myself that it's not useful. After all, a degree in linguistics is really, really impressive in certain bar situations. So, for example, you know, you, you go up and you meet a young woman who you find attractive. This is if you're male and straight that, um, you know, perhaps might not be interested in you and you say, oh, well, I have a degree in linguistics, immediately that's interesting because 99% of people have never heard of linguistics and for some reason think it is actually more interesting than it really is. And so they want to find out more about it. And so there you go. Does your wife know you do this? I, I, you know, I don't think she's going to be listening to this, um, and I think I'm going to have to try to make sure that she's not. Okay. So young Kevin, major in linguistics, uses to hit on people in bars. And I think we also should advise young Kevin to uh, work his way through the choose-your-own-career-in-linguistics algorithm, which really will probably help him to settle the question for himself. That's quite true, yes. Uh, Specgram, on the Specgram website, there's a choose-your-own-career-in-linguistics game that you can do that uh, gives you very realistic outcomes in uh, how your career in linguistics could go. So there's not a, lot not, of, so. not a lot of hitting on people in bars in that particular version, though. We may have to update That's that in the future. Well, that was freeware. I mean, you have to have to save something for the money-making version. The premium version. The pro yeah, version. Yeah, the uh, enterprise version, I think. Ooh, yeah, site yeah. license. Kevin could never never afford yeah. it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Tune in next time for some largely nonsensical banter tenuously related to language. Thanks for listening.